Andy, I hear you've got a new project. Hey, Lily, you heard right. I'm doing a transformation project, you know, working on getting a new service up and running to help an organization move into new ways of working. Hmm, sounds like fun. But here's a question. How do you know where to get started? Ooh, good one. Um, You know, I do my research. There's a bunch of mapping, but most of it is talking to people. Is, Is that how you start new things, Lily? Yeah, that's pretty much my approach too. But how do you know that you're doing it right? Ooh, now there's a good question. You know, I've learned a lot from doing it wrong over the years, and I've learned a lot from some great colleagues who have shown me better ways. How about you? Well, of course, I never make mistakes. But actually, in terms of interviewing people, I was lucky enough to work with Robert Sugar, who has a great approach to this. And I asked him to come and join us today to chat about it. I worked with him before at CloudFind, which was a startup, um, but he's also gone on to work at Zalando and now works at Kareem, which is a part of Uber in the UAE. Ooh, I know you're practically perfect in every way, (laughs) but Robert sounds absolutely ace and I could always use some more advice. So let's get right to it. The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the Product Experience Podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's great to be here and uh, to be chatting with you guys. So we know each other very well and go back quite a few years. Um, But for anyone who doesn't know you, give us a quick intro into your background, how you got into product and what you're up to these days. Sure. So I was always very, very passionate about technology in general, so much so that I managed to win kind of an innovation competition back when I was studying in Britain. Um, So I ended up being an entrepreneur with a startup in the educational uh, ed tech sector. I then moved over to work in a tech startup that was B2B focused in the SaaS industry, um, working with enterprise partners such as Salesforce and Dropbox. And after about four years there, I moved to Berlin to join the largest online fashion retailer called Salando. I worked on a bunch of um, products there, like the recommendations engine, uh, driving some large UX revamps and conceptualizing their first design system. It's very exciting stuff. And right now I'm with um, Kareem in Dubai. Uh, It's the leading super app of the MENA region. And uh, we got acquired by Uber last year, which was very exciting. It's been a very interesting ride so far, going for the acquisition and um, also through the pandemic this year. Outside of it, uh, I like to enjoy a good cup of tea. I think this is a habit I picked up whilst working in Britain. It's quite addictive. I'm a pretty sportsy guy, so my main sport was kitesurfing in the past year. Um, oh, nice. Probably like 80% of the people on the planet or 
um, the folks listening to this podcast are like traveling. So I'm, I'm very pleased to be speaking to you from Greece. I'm working remotely from here. That's awesome. I love how you've got some like personal touches in there. I think you're the first person that we've interviewed that's given us a little bit of personal information as well. Um, uh, actually, Christina, Christina Vodka um, from the lecturer from Stanford. Um, mm. she, I, I took her as inspiration because I attended one of her courses and she was talking about importance of storytelling. And I listened to her podcast and she did the exact same thing and I loved it. Oh, nice. You just have to remember that everyone else we've interviewed aside from you two has been robots. So... <laughs> So our topic today is product managers and user research. Um, and we had a really good chat about kind of interesting topics to cover that we haven't we haven't kind of spoken about on the podcast before. And um, one of the things that we did when we worked together at that B2B startup was um, a lot of user research interviews. So you've now worked in lots of different businesses. Um, what's your take on user research interviews and product managers kind of role in that part of the product development process? Ah, very interesting, good question. I think it's, it's from my perspective, it's a very critical piece of what a product manager is supposed to do. Now, normally, depending on the size of the company, you might have a central user research team that just does user research and user interviews. If it's a smaller company, um, you'll have the product designer or the uh, UX designer associated with your team do that. Whatever kind of support you have as a PM, nonetheless, you do have to speak to your customers. Ultimately, you're supposed to be the voice of the customer. Um, and if you're just ingesting PowerPoint presentations from other teams or other, other functions, you're not going to understand the pain points that your customers are going through or their jobs to be done. Um, and what I've seen working across different countries and across different um, uh, companies uh, of different sizes is a lot of PMs find this painful. They find it painful to talk to customers. I, it's almost like they're afraid. They're afraid they're going to find out that their product sucks or <laughs> they're going to find something that um, is embarrassing or they're not sure how to react with customers. And that's, that's, a, major, that's a major barrier to PMs. That's what I've observed. So... You've experienced this firsthand in the companies that you've worked in. How have you kind of approached where you've had uh, people have this kind of attitude towards user interviews? Normally what I try and do, and I, I try and demystify it. I try and make people comfortable. Um, I invite them to participate in one and shadow me or act as an observer. And once they see the dialogue happening with a customer, once they see customers don't actually bite, you know, they're just human beings like us and they have desires, wants and pains. And ideally, you should explore their pains, not their uh, hypothetical desires. Um, they tend to get more comfortable with the idea of scheduling their own interviews. And another thing that helps a lot is uh, just setting a low bar. Um, you know, uh, Navy SEALs teams have a saying whenever you start acquiring a new skill, like interviewing customers, for example, and say, you know, embrace the suck. You will suck at interviewing customers because you have to prep the questions, you have to ask them, you have to listen intently. Then you have to prep the next questions or the next deep dives in the interview. And at the same time, you have to write deep, meaningful notes um, or learnings. So these are, it's, it's quite hard to do it in the beginning if you're not used to it. Um, but embracing that suck, as the SEALs say, <laughs> um, you know, after the first five or 10, you're just going to fly with it. It's going to become second nature. Okay, so I've worked on a number of projects where I've been lucky enough to have a, a researcher working with me. And 
in theory, it's their job to run the interviews. How should this work? I mean, if we're supposed to be talking to or listening to our customers, uh, is this something where we tag team and let them drive? Or is this something where we should be driving as well? Or how would you recommend that? You should definitely tag along for many different reasons. I'm not going to go over all of them, but one of them is bias, right? So if you're a user researcher, is one individual, they have inherent biases. Um, so they should definitely be involving other people like the engineers, the, um, uh, the PMs, PMs from other teams, uh, product designers from other teams to eliminate bias and to explore the kind of questions you might want to answer and the type of learnings you might want to um, explore uh, get from the user research. And secondly, um, it's great if you have a user researchers. Great. That's, that's their main job. That's their area of ownership. You want to empower them. You can basically be, be their sidekick, right? Uh, okay, you're going to interview 10 people. Can I please observe a couple of them? Or may I please have, you know, may I please run one or two of the interviews myself? And I honestly do not think any sane user researcher would say no to a bit of help. They would actually be excited to see that a product manager wants to be part of this, wants to listen. And the key thing that I've seen happening, and it came across multiple, um, I've seen it, uh, I've seen multiple product leaders resonate with this is bringing other people on the journey with you. Um, so inviting some of the engineers to observe some of the interviews, inviting some of the stakeholders to actually observe, that's when people really get it. Not when, not so much when you present a couple of slides with a couple of quotes um, um, and you know a photograph, a profile picture of the customers you interviewed. Yeah, that's fine. It's a, it's a good story and they understand it, but it really sinks in uh, when they actually see people talk or use the product or comment on some wireframes. Mm. And you kind of mentioned earlier then how um, it, it's a real skill to perform user research interviews. So let's start from the kind of the beginning of selecting your audience um, and deciding who you're going to interview. Is there, do you have any kind of tips for um, for choosing who to interview or, you know, are there bad people to interview or is everyone a good um, a good candidate? Okay. Um, I don't know if they're bad people. I'll touch upon that. Maybe they're the wrongly selected people. I don't think anybody's inherently bad. <laughs> In terms of going about it, uh, most of the user research that happens should actually start with a research brief or an interview protocol, which is a very simple, you know, one or two pager document that defines kind of the user, um, sorry, the research questions you want answered or the learnings you want to, uh, uh, or the learning outcomes you want to get. What do you want to learn about the users? And the way you normally start about it is you have to have an understanding of the jobs to be done. What are they actually trying to achieve? And, you know, you can ask questions like, what do, you, do you, what do your users need? What are your users struggling with? Um, how can you help your users? And that's a good seed list to use to kind of create actual interview questions. Um, this is assuming, obviously, you're not doing user lab tests, as in you're not showing wireframes to anybody. You're not showing them any features. You're just doing exploratory, qualitative interviews where you're asking questions about how do you try to achieve X activity or mm. uh, how do they normally use uh, X feature. In terms of um, the target users, they should be your target customers. So we're assuming here that you know who your target customers are. They're the people who actually generate revenue or who are your actual day-to-day -day users. As an example, you know, at Salon that we had online fashion shop shoppers. Those who are 
are target users. Uh, they're people who are comfortable purchasing shoes or fashion items online. Um, and we'd interviewed them about their struggles and about how they browse the website for the apps and so on and so forth. What triggers do they have? What time of the day do they normally do things? And um, we even went as far as uh, doing observational or ethnological studies where you actually go in people's places and you observe them using our app on an iPad and so on and so forth. The other thing that I think is important for people to consider comes from, um, from the theory of the adjacent users. So you might want to interview people who are not using your product. People, for example, who are not purchasing fashion items online, right? To find out what are the main barriers there. Maybe it's because, you know, they're afraid of credit card fraud, right? Maybe yeah. returns is a hassle. So I find that dichotomy to be very useful. And normally you just work internally to kind of source these candidates, either for your database, um, you know, for your analytics, or if it's really hard, you can try friends and family to begin with. Whatever you do, just, you just have to start. And how many people would you say is a good number of people to interview? Because it, it's very time consuming, isn't it? I mean, the, well, in my experience, it tends to be about sort of 30 to 60 minutes, sometimes a bit longer. Mm. Um, uh, so, it, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> if yeah. you're doing like 20 of those, that's well, yeah, a good chunk of time gone. <laughs> You'd be amazed, but I recently underestimated how much work this is, and um, I didn't have user research support, so I had to do it myself, and I grossly underestimated just how much time I normally spent, and I ended up spending double the amount of hours just writing the insights and um, mm. theme. So what I'd say is, um, and this is, again, um, pretty much aligned with the, the product leaders I've been uh, discussing, normally we see learning stale off after eight to 10 interviews. If, if you select your target users, for the interviews quite correctly, you don't tend to get a lot of new major learnings after eight or 10 interviews. Anything you get is incremental or it is an outlier that you should not kind of, you should not, you know, follow through. Okay, there's two questions I really want to ask you. And one is uh, building on that, but one goes back a little bit. So let me go, go back first. Uh, and hopefully this is a, a quick one. When you're recruiting people to, to interview, should be, you be offering them a reward? Uh, a bounty of some sort, should you pay them? Um, interesting. My view on this is that the goal when you're recruiting people is to not introduce bias. So if your reward is significant enough, it will introduce bias. The challenge is if you're not offering any reward, who's going to be willing to give you one hour of their time? Turns out a lot of people. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> If you just ask and you're very polite and you're explaining, look, we're looking into improving how our product works for you and for other customers as well. I would love to get your opinion on a couple of things. Do you have half an hour? Do you have 45 minutes? The amount of people who reply and give you that amount of time is staggering. Um, and um, yeah, it's encouraging. So giving rewards should not be, or not having budget for a reward should not be a, a major barrier. Yeah. Unless you be industry and your customers um, and users are VPs of marketing or sales and those people, we do not have any time to waste. So good luck with that. <laughs> Fair. Okay, so uh, we could spend an entire episode just on that topic, but I wanted to move on. And you, so you talked about uh, you underestimated how long it was going to take you to do the research, but the interesting part wasn't uh, recruiting the users or actually uh, having the conversations. It was generating the insights and writing up afterwards. So talk us a little bit about when is your research done? What does what the, the after action look like? 
Do you mean after you finish the interviews, that process, yeah. that first processing process? Okay, cool, cool. Yes, exactly that. Cool, cool. So I'll split this in, in half, basically. As you finish the interviews, um, you have a bunch of notes. And um, if you're lucky and you had observers, they would ideally write these on post-it notes, one idea on one post-it note. It's, it's called free listing and design thinking methodology. And basically, immediately after you finish an interview, you debrief with your observers and you try to kind of like listen to how everybody interpreted the results. And very quickly, you'll uh, you'll be able to find the themes or uh, do affinity mapping. So you basically collect all of these learnings that came out of that one interview into kind of themes. Um, and if you do this for 10 interviews, at the end, you'll have overarching themes and you'll be able to say, look, this is what came out of the interviews. These are the five theme key themes, five key challenges that people are having. And you can deep dive into examples um, of them. If you're unlucky and you have to do this by yourself and you don't have any observers, you're the only person who took notes there. So one is you're introducing bias because you probably missed a couple of key points. You might want to report that. You, in some countries, uh, you have to legally you know, request permission to do that from the interviewer because you might want to listen again. Um, but immediately after you finish that interview and you've written that down, uh, after you have a couple of interviews finished, you do again what's called theming or affinity mapping, or in academic terms, it's called codifying. It's basically looking at all the data points and trying to find themes. Um, so if you find out that out of 10 people, eight of them have struggles, um, you know, uh, picking a delivery option on the checkout, and they've mentioned this, and they give you examples, then that's a clear, clear problem space for you, like checkout problems, right? That might be one problem space under checkout conversion problems. Um, and you can do this using post-its uh, on a whiteboard in the office. Given it's a pandemic, just go ahead and use Google Jamboard <laughs> or Miro. <laughs> Miro, honestly, is a fantastic tool. It's the kind of tool, like it's, it's it's honestly super great. I'm actually envious. I wish I would have invented Miro. Like it's made my <laughs> honestly, it's just so cool. Um, now this is the first part of the process where you're just trying to get the learnings and you're trying to codify them into themes. The next part is what do you do with those? Because some of them are learnings just for learning's sake. Some of them are actually insights. They're things you can action. They're things you can modify in the product immediately or in the next couple of months and plot on a roadmap and solutionize and conceptualize. Uh, that's one part. And the second part is how do you communicate this to the rest of your team? Um, so again, I call this building a shared understanding or creating shared empathy towards your users. And you have to take those themes um, make them super easy to ingest in a Google Doc or in, in, a, in, a, in some slides. Use quotes, use photographs, use snippets of video or snippets of audio if you have time and present that uh, to your engineering team, to your um, designers, uh, to your stakeholders, executive stakeholders. And it's not just a one-time thing. You can obviously do that in one hour. But what I normally find useful is if you just drop nuggets of wisdom, like here's the customer quote that came from the interviews. It's associated with this theme. And you just drop those nuggets every once every week. And that tends to kind of like uh, really create that shared empathy or shared understanding. Because as a product manager, you're never going to be involved in every single decision. You cannot micromanage every single team or they're building. So engineers will have to make decisions without your inputs. Product designers will have to make decisions without your inputs. Um, and the best way to achieve a great goal for the customer is to make sure that everybody has the same understanding of what the customer pain points are. I think it's really powerful when I've seen it with where you have customer quotes or those those little snippets of video um, with the customer explaining completely in their own words um, 
how they're feeling about something uh yeah really really hammers it home and whenever I've been in a user research interview and one of those quotes is said I get really excited like oh my god I can't wait to share that with everyone (laughs) Um, experience like a lot of times you'll get good feedback and you want to share the good feedback as well almost like in a retro you start on a positive note and then you sag into here's the not so pink stuff um here's some uh, you know big frustrations here and some big feelings very humble yeah <laughs> changes to our digital world in 2020 mean many companies need new tools to help them flourish and amplitude is here to help with their product intelligence platform they help top product teams at companies like paypal instacart peloton and atlassian to build product experiences that convert and retain customers In fact, Amplitude are the top-rated solution for product analytics on G2.com. They help teams answer questions like, how are people using our digital products? Why do users convert or drop off? Which features drive the most impact? And what should we build next? What should we build next? See for yourself how companies like DoorDash and Cisco build for growth using Amplitude. Visit Amplitude.com slash MTP. Okay, so what about bias, though? Because, you know, there is, if you just have like yourself in the room, or if there's just a couple of people in the room, there is still that um, ability to to be biased. So how do you train yourself to try and remove bias and, and to try and ask questions in a kind of non-leading way? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start by answering the last piece, which is easier, which is how not to ask <laughs> <laughs> or hypotheticals. Um, in general, you just have to practice asking open-ended questions um, and being very careful not to lead the interviewer. Because if you're leading, if you're asking questions such as, you know, why did you have difficulty with this navigation? That implies the user had difficulty. Did you first ask them, how did it feel using this navigation? Right. That's a much more um, um, uh, non-intrusive, neutral question, and you allow them the space to explain how they felt. And maybe they felt it was difficult. Maybe they felt it was easy. Um, uh, don't don't imbue your your sense of uh, what the experience was uh, in your question. Otherwise, you're, you're going to bias them. Um, also, it's not good to ask hypotheticals like, would you use feature X or would you pay for uh, feature X? Um, these are not very, um, um, you're not going to get adequate data on them. P- people are notorious for saying they will do things and then not doing them. So. <laughs> Focus more on um, past experience. Past experience is a really good predictor of future behavior. So it's better mm-hmm. to ask people, tell me a story about how you used this feature last time, or tell me about it. You know, tell me about how do you normally use this feature? When was the last time you placed an order? Can you show me how you placed an order? And so on and so forth. On the first part of your question regarding bias, that's a really, really difficult one. Really, really difficult. So I'll, I'll just give you my my opinion on this. Um, it's always good to involve other people because they will flag things up that you did not notice. Um, so that is definitely very, very helpful. Um, it's really good to um, also manage your sampling bias, meaning the people that you source for the interviews. So if you plan on doing 10 interviews, if those 10 people are of a specific gender, which I'm not going to mention, it's probably a bad idea. 
right? Unless your unless your user base, your target persona is just that gender, right? And that's mm -hmm. you know this income band, this age group, and this gender. It's probably not. I probably can guarantee you. So um, packing that sampling bias is something you can do from day one. It's doable. It's just you know if you send an email request sourcing interviews uh, interviewees to 100 customers and you get 50 replies from a specific gender, don't choose don't choose that. Like try and broaden broaden the the sample you're tapping into. Then there's um, confirmation bias where you're asking questions or interpreting answers in a way that confirms your pre-existing beliefs. Um, the way around this is to not ask leading questions and to keep an open mind and not jump to conclusions. And look, like I said, it's very difficult. Um, there are so many biases that it's um, almost impossible to be aware of all of them. Um, so we should just be honest as PMs, be honest with ourselves that the products we build kind of affect the lives of many, many people. And we should definitely strive to reduce bias as much as possible from our products. And not all of this is on the user interviews, to be honest. Um, you can also use quantitative research methods um, such as surveys to validate your learnings. And these quantitative methods normally tap into a much more diverse set of users. Or um, you can definitely do user lab testing. Um, so you should develop wireframes, prototypes, or simple ML experiments, which you can then validate with a completely new set of um, users that's much more diverse than what you had in your interviews, for example. And lastly, what I'd say is you're far more likely to uh, show in-group thinking and to also introduce bias into your products if you do not talk to customers. Um, I can't stress this enough. So um, I think it's Steve Blank from the Lean Startup uh, Movement who said, just get out of the building and just talk to customers. And um, I really believe in that. So um, yeah, that's that's my point of view. Mm. So one of the, the types of bias I've become really interested in lately is we limit ourselves in interviews by deciding what questions we're going to ask in the first place. And we limit the subject to learn only learning about the things we think to ask about. But there's any number of things that the customer might be interested in or could tell us that are outside of our what we think to ask. How do you leave space with the customers for them to surprise you, to take you in a new direction, to, to tell you about something else that might be really interesting and insightful, but you just didn't even, your experience... Uh, put you in a space where you didn't even think to ask about it? Yeah, sure. That's that's a really good question. It comes down to your research brief and where you're trying to get out of it. If, if you if you know exactly the areas you want to explore, you're going to do an interview protocol that has what's called semi-structured uh, research questions. So these are basically, you'll have 10 questions as a seed list. And then based on the answers, you might take it in one direction or the other. You're not going to follow those 10 questions set in a robotic manner. Um, now, what you're referring to, Randy, is a very a very exploratory uh, piece of research. And you can just start it as a conversation. Um, let's say somebody's using um, Dropbox, right? Show me how you use Dropbox, Randy. Cool, yeah, show me on the screen. Oh, okay, cool, you're using it to upload your photos from your iPhone. Okay, why is that? How do you, why do you find that valuable? When do you normally do this? Any other use cases you have? So you basically start extremely, extremely broad and then um, What's going to happen is the users will deep dive for you. And then what you'll have to do is listen to that deep dive, understand it, go deep into it, but then also pull them back because they will start telling you everything about their photo library and their photo album. And I'll respect that and I'll, I'll love it. I'll love to see photos of their family and friends. That's going to be great. But at some point, I'll have to pull it down. It's like, 
okay, do you have any other use cases for Dropbox? Do you use their document editor? You've never used it? Okay, okay. Do you use any other tools for document editing? Oh, you use Google Docs, interesting. Right, why do you use Google Docs? Um, or I'm asking a leading question now, but <laughs> um, you can try and explore why are they using certain workarounds, right, when they have that availability in Dropbox. And that's, um, that's, that's just at a high level, that would be my guidance. I think that's really interesting. And do you spend a lot of time trying to build rapport when you're doing interviews? Because I think sometimes that can help with, you know, with exactly that kind of situation where um, if the if they feel a bit more comfortable and and they kind of want to share more with you or there's just a bit of sort of rela- more relaxed banter. Um, I don't know if that's the answer or... <laughs> that's already half of the answer. You're bang on your money, Lily. Um you know, look, interviews are not normal. <laughs> However you define normal. It's it's not it's not a comfortable situation to be in for most customers. Most people never get interviewed in their life, right? Except for job interviews. <laughs> so you, there's a lot of tension there. So as a PM or as a user researcher, those spending those 10, 15 minutes building reports, building that comfort um, really takes you a long way. And I spend a lot of effort, um, you know, uh, ranging from the tone of voice I use, from uh, how fast I speak, um, you have to calibrate to the user, to, to the interviewer, mm. and maybe, um, going as far as explaining that there's no right or wrong answer uh, because you're not going to judge them, um, and explaining that you need them to think out loud, right? You, you're not going to want to get like cookie cutter answers or robotic answers. You want them to think out loud because you're trying to understand what they're thinking uh, thinking processes or what their thought patterns are. Uh, that takes you a long way in terms of getting um, better better answers, really, like more honest answers. Because what happens is if you don't do that, and especially if there's a reward, people come in an interview and we have a natural desire, human desire to try and please people. So they will try and give you the socially accepted answer or they'll try to tell you what they think you want to hear, right? Especially if you're showing them wireframes or sacrificial concepts. They'll tell you what you want to hear. And that's very dangerous. I think that's a really interesting point on the um, pleasing people side of things, because if you if you're working in a B2B environment um, and, you know, you don't if you have like a handful of um, important clients and you're kind of you're wanting to do some user research with your clients, it can be really tricky to um, do that user research, get all of that feedback and then feel like you need to respond to it straight away and you need to respond to all of it. So do you have a trick for kind of managing expectations when you're doing user research in that sort of B2B scenario? Just to make sure I understood the question, right? You're, you're referring to when you're working in a B2B environment, you're interviewing your enterprise customers there might be an implied expectation that you will address some of their some of their concerns or some of their feature requests or uh, wants and desires. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Good. I, it's very important, as and a lot of PMs will notice. Um, um, it's very important to set expectations and manage expectations upfront. Um, I think everybody in their pre- in their PM career gets burned at least a couple of times until until they learn this lesson. And this is valid not only for internal stakeholders uh, horizontally and vertically, uh, but also uh, with enterprise customers. 
So when you go, when you do go and visit their headquarters and you sit down at a table with them and you talk about, you know, how they're using your product, what challenges they have, it's very important that you set the scene um, and you set the expectations that you're interviewing other customers as well, that you're trying to figure out how to improve the product, that some of their um, uh, aspects might be, um, might be or might not be um, considered on a future roadmap and uh, that you, what you can promise is that you'll listen to them and that you'll keep them up to date and that you'll be transparent with what's coming up next in the next, you know, um, short, medium and long term. Mm. So it's a relationship. At the end of the day, it's um, it's humans dealing with, uh, it's people dealing with people. So, Yeah, yeah. So can you can you actually believe what users say when you are interviewing them? Ah, very good point. Yes, people are notorious for um, telling you what uh, they think you want to hear. Um, mm. There's this, what I'd say is there's this very interesting quote that people keep mentioning, and I'm guilty of this as well. I have it on some slides from a, year, a few years back. Uh, Henry Ford is um, supposed to have said, if, you, if I would ask people what they want, they would have said faster horses, and the T mm. model would never have been. Well, actually, there's been a lot of research on this, and Harvard Business Review even published um, an article on how you know there's Henry Ford did not say this. Henry Ford absolutely did not say this. It, it's it's nowhere to be found. Um, so I find this very interesting. And what I'd say is, it's not about asking customers what they want or trusting what they say they want. It's about exploring their pain points. Mm. So in the case. Henry Ford and Faster Horses, I would ask, okay, you're using horses for your transportation. Um, talk a bit about how you're using them and what challenges you have. And what you're going to find out probably is, yeah, horses suck for long distances. You have to change the horse because they're low on energy or they need to eat or they need to stop uh, for specific reasons or health reasons or they get injured, right? So once you start focusing on those challenges, on those pain points, you start saying, okay, if I figure a way, uh, if I figure out a way to build a horse that doesn't, you know, that can walk for miles and miles uh, without the need to be changed, now you're you're into something else. You can build a metal car, for example. Yeah. That's that's what I would say. Prefer pain doesn't need petrol. <laughs> but you know, they also say uh, if you have the choice between printing the truth and printing the legend, print the legend. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's that's PR for you and storytelling. Exactly. So, you can do all this research and you can get a lot of wonderful learnings and insights from it. But sometimes you have people in the organization who've got that hippo problem where they know best, they know they have their opinion, they know what it, the answer should be even before the research. How do you confront them with something you've learned that might be, um, Contrary to their opinion, hippos. Everybody loves hippos. They're they're nice and plump and big, and they're very dangerous. They they, they can actually go <laughs> right. So, um, I will I will talk about two things you can do. One of them is probably a lot of people are, are going to expect this, and the second one I don't think a lot of people will expect uh, the second one. The first one is um, you can definitely use and leverage your insights, your interview insights, craft them into a compelling story. And mm -hmm. and also back them up with any analytics you have, any quantitative data. Then you've got a pretty compelling case to kind of um, try and convince and persuade people. And at the end of the day, no matter how much data you use, again, as people dealing with people, you will have to persuade people that it's the right thing to do if this is what the data is showing. Um, 
On the second point, which uh, is going to go a bit counter, um, counter and trend is, yeah, maybe we should listen to the hippo. I mean, if the hippo is the CEO of the company, if the CEO of the company has a very strong vision, the company has already succeeded, um, um, then maybe we should be a bit more vision-led than data-led. And the example I can give you is WeChat and, uh, and, um, and their super app, right? WeChat is, has a very, very clean interface and a very, very clean um, uh, UX uh, interaction patterns. The reason for that is because almost every single feature that requ uh, requires some sort of real estate on the application has to be vetted by uh, Zhang, the, one of the co-founders. And he's the chief architect there. Yes, it's a bottleneck. Yes, it means you know it's, uh, you're not doing distributed innovation. You're not employing um, you know you're not having uh, autonomous tech teams doing design thinking methodology and crafting uh, innovative experiences. Uh, it's a bottleneck. It's slower, but it is a very simple experience and it is successful. So depending on the market, the industry, and the opportunity, I think we need to adapt. Uh, I think that's a really interesting point and um, one that a lot of people will be like, no, but I don't want to listen to the hippo. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. just want to listen to the users. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Um, Robert, it's been so lovely talking to you. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it and I'm sure our listeners have got lots out of that. So it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. It's been uh, great fun. I love talking to you guys and uh, hope people are going to find this useful and they're actually going to schedule uh, their uh, interviews next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a lovely chat with Robert. What did you think, Randy? Oh, that's fantastic. And I'm definitely going to use that going forward. What are we doing next week, Lily? Do you know what? I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know that it's something really interesting. Let's preserve the mystery. You'll have to tune in next week to find out what great guests we've got. But I guarantee they're going to be a good one. We'll see you then. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and... Me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm -hmm.